Welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better, part two. And it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. We're still trying to figure out these part twos, aren't we? We are. So this is the second part of our last episode where we talked about Visible Man, the new 2020. Yes. And this is where I talk about a true crime. Well, and so a lot of the themes of this movie are obviously about domestic violence. Sure. There's also an Invisible Man, and there's also optics. But I couldn't find an optic murder. I guess right. we could have done like the eyeball killer. Well, mostly because we don't know what that means. Right. <laughs> We're really still convinced he's just an ophthalmologist. Right. The field of optics. <laughs> right. Sure. But so, so we talked about some aspects of domestic violence on our It Follows episode. We did, yeah. Where I took that a little differently than maybe the STD route is what a lot of people kind of thought it follows was about because yeah. it seemed more like stalking and violence against women to me well so just, just a little update about domestic violence in that episode i referenced the when men murder women study that comes out every year by the violence policy center so the latest info they have is not much different from 2018 but just a little information is 92 uh, percent of females are murdered by a male that they know. 62% were wives or intimate partners. Most women murdered by intimate male partners are killed by guns. I just thought all that was just, just hearing that is just so much violent imagery. And we're talking about guns in the home. Right. Enough of the guns, people. Yeah. According to the FBI's crime reports, in 2017, there were only 349 justifiable homicides that were committed by private citizens with guns in their homes. Of these, only 44 involved women killing men. Overall, the CDC says that the most common issues of having a gun in the home are suicide, homicide, or fatal unintentional injury. So you see that self-defense is is a very, very small percentage. Women using the gun against an attacker or an abuser is even smaller. So most of the time, it's Whoever the victim is, because this is violence against women, but obviously we know it can be it can be men. The majority of the time, it's the attacker using the gun against the victim. That's the right. most likely case scenario. So essentially, the CDC was trying to say, like, please get guns out of your home. Uh, domestic violence, or they also call it, now it's uh, referred to as IPV, intimate partner violence, because it doesn't have to be, like, domestic kind of kind of makes it seem like it's spousal or, you know, it's this traditional uh. male and female but it's just intimate partner. Anybody that you live with and so you are in a relationship. Yes. It had reached its low in 2014, but in the last three years, it's gone up. Well, they say it's gone up further also because people, you know, quarantine together. Oh, that, yeah. I have a little bit of information on that too. But, um, and we also talked about this last time. At that time, the Violence Against Women Act had expired when we had recorded that It Follows episode. And then it lapsed. And then on April 4th, then they reauthorized the bill, and there was a, some additional provisions that prohibited people related to domestic violence owning firearms. That's huge. And they tried to incorporate some more federal, state, and local laws to keep people who had been accused of domestic violence being able to get a gun. 
They also reformed their laws to better protect victims from people with histories of domestic violence. So right. I'm not exactly what those policies were, but so they reinstated that same bill, but they added some more stuff to it. So, and then this kind of goes into um, the Black Lives Matter movement. We kind of need to discuss that the fact that black women are murdered twice as much as white women, which is pretty insane because black women only make up about 8% of the population. And it's the same thing we talked about. Yes, all lives matter, but right now black lives are the ones that are... They're in the brunt of... Yes. And so it's the same thing with this. Yes, all victims of intimate partner violence matter, but for some reason, black women's lives are... We're losing them at twice the rate. I wonder if that has also, you know, some bearing on the, you know, the relationship between um, policing and the black community at this time or in general, because maybe they're less um, comfortable calling the police yes. or whoever when, I mean, of course, maybe there's an argument that it shouldn't even be the police that you call. You know, right. there should be mental health professionals, um, which is an interesting and fascinating idea. Um, hashtag defund the police. Right. <laughs> which the I'm my- not saying that, but I, I'm curious about what that uh, honestly looks like. Um, right. So research published by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in 2017 found, this is a quote, it says, homicides occur in women of all ages and among all races, but young, racial, Ethnic minority women are disproportionately affected. The article concluded, the racial ethnic differences in female homicide underscore the importance of targeting prevention and intervention efforts to populations at disproportionately high risk. Addressing violence will require an integrated response that considers the influence of larger community and societal factors that make violence more likely to occur, which is really fancy speak for what Black Lives is trying right. to say. Black women only make up 8% of the population, but 22% of homicides that result from IPV happen to black women, and 29% of all victimized women. And this is shocking, making it the leading cause of death for black women ages 15 to 35. Wow. They're also less likely to get help, which is what you had kind of talked about. And so this is information that I got from Feminista Jones, you know, the activist and author This is an article she wrote. She has a new book out called Reclaiming Our Space. So this is from an article she wrote about when Ray Rice, who was Ravens running back, football player, was caught on tape. With the elevator beating Yeah, he's beating his fiance until she was unconscious. And so this is an article she wrote about it. And so this is directly from her. I am not trying to make any statements about what it's like to be a black woman, especially a black woman in in a violent relationship. This is directly from her. Uh, This is also, this is a quote from another activist and reporter, Giselle Hunt. This is from an article she wrote called Field Lessons from Reporting on Black Women, Survivors of Sexual Violence. She says, quote, many cultural considerations can hinder healing for black women survivors. The burdensome expectation of strong black womanhood, the power of black church, the desire to shield black men, and the lack of self-care examples are all real dynamics black survivors endure. And then Feminista Jones goes on to explain that essentially breaking that down, black women have to worry more about racism before they can feminism. That's a pretty powerful statement. You know, white women don't have to worry about fighting for their place as a white woman. They only have to think about being a woman. Right. And so that's why there's been a lot of issues, especially with the suffragettes trying to get the vote for women. They were talking about white women. Yeah. So the, the white women have that sort of double consciousness going on where they have to operate as a woman and as well as uh, a black woman. Right. Yeah. And so putting the, the ideas of racism ahead of feminism 
something that white people don't have to worry right. about. I'm, I'm, I'm curious and you know, if you know what her comment about they have to deal with a black church. What would that necessarily? Mean? Oh, yeah. I have a little bit more information about that. So black women also have the same distrust as police as black men, like you were saying. They also have a fear of upsetting their community. You know, they they have black Americans have had to for so long try to fight this stereotype that white people have given them. And so they go to extra lengths to maybe try to cover things up where, where white people don't have to worry about that. Right, they can yeah. air all the dirty laundry if they want. Or There's also just an issue of that black men are as twice as high as unemployment rates as white men. So that means there's going to be more tension in the home. I mean, I think we already know yeah, that money will be home more usually is yeah the root of a lot of this these issues also black women earn less than black men and white women and white men and you know they're so the the fact that they can't support themselves without the abusive partner makes it harder to leave it's hard enough for white women to leave and get a job let alone um if you're making even less money than a white woman at the same job, especially if they have kids, it's going to be even harder. So one in three black Americans don't get the mental help they need. And they tend to rely on their faith and church because they had to distrust so much stuff. The medical community. I mean, if you think about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, you know, and so they kind of put a lot of faith into church and that that's going to heal them. Also, there was an interesting um, back to our Candyman episode with Ruthie Mae McCoy she put a lot of faith into church and her daughter had to help her to not keep sending money to these preachers that were trying to get her to give them money. Like they would send her things and be like, we'll send you a piece of anointed wood if you send us a check for $18, you know, and Ruthie Mae put so much into that. She had like ripped out articles from religious magazines that said like, God is your dentist, you know, and you go to church and you give money to the church, then you could be healed. Okay. And then I just want to read a quote because I mean, I can't say it any better. This is what Feminista Jones wrote in that article that I'll put a link to where she wrote about why black women are more likely to be victims of IPV. But she wrote, for too long, the experiences of black women have been ignored, particularly when it comes to those that affect our overall health and well-being. For centuries, our body and labor have been exploited to serve the needs of everyone but ourselves and the physical and psychological toll can no longer be swept under the rug. Black women matter, and the longer we remain invisible and have our dignity stripped and our humanity disregarded, the closer we get to the destruction of our families and communities. We must all work to end the marginalization of black women and focus our energies on amplifying our voices and sharing what we go through at home, at work, and in our communities. I mean, that's just more than we could ever say. Yeah, I, I don't think I could say it during that. <laughs> um, but she's talking about everyone amplifying black women's voices. And also, you know, that will maybe give the confidence to black women to know that their voice matters. Also, we need better interventions and, right. and help to them. In terms of intimate partner violence, of course, men are affected too. There actually might be more abuse against men, especially emotional abuse by women. But men are less likely to report it. Report it. They don't or maybe be... even recognize it as abuse. Right. Yeah. There, there. I mean, there's been sitcoms, I think, where, you know, like the woman abuses the man and it's a joke. Yeah. And 
especially, I mean, like manipulation, all that sort of, it's still abuse. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny that you're sort of trained to cheer as an audience member when the you know, woman sort of slaps the man for whatever reason, you know, usually because right. he's being a heel or something. And, and I don't know if that really counts as abuse exactly, but it's something. I mean, it's violence. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's also yeah. an issue for men, and this is men in relationships with women, or men in relationships with men, or women in relationships with women, any type of violence or manipulation or emotional abuse should not be tolerated. One in four women have reported violence, and one in seven men have reported being violently abused. Um, Also, people with disabilities are much more likely to be affected. Only one out of three people who are injured for a domestic incident will ever receive medical care. Most cases are never reported, but the National Domestic Violence Hotline has um, a great website. It's just www.thehotline.org, and they have tons of information, and they're available to chat 24-7, so we'll put all that information on our show notes page. But as you were saying, the quarantine has caused a spike in domestic violence all over the world. Being trapped with your partner in a stressful time is just... I mean, that's yeah. A I can imagine how terrible it must be if you already are in a abusive relationship, and maybe your only relief sometimes is these periods of respite where your spouse is just at work or something, yes. or is otherwise occupied, uh, maybe going out, and then suddenly you don't even have that anymore. Common tools of abuse include isolation from friends and family, constant surveillance, strict rules and restrictions, and so it's like, well, that's. That's perfect. That's what home isolation is. Yeah. And so then you're forced to do that. And people can't go to shelters because they're closed. They can't get a court date for divorce. Like you were saying, like all, a lot of court cases have been pushed back. Or if it's a domestic violence dispute, they have a, they can't, it's hard to find a new place to live during the quarantine. So they, but that hotline and there's, there's still sources available to help people. But I like the, um, the national domestic violence. Their slogan is, we envision a world where all relationships are positive, healthy, and free from violence. Okay, but but that's not my true crime. That's just a bunch of information oh, well, about okay. <laughs> domestic violence. Okay, so I'm going to tell you the true story of Francine Hughes. Okay? I can only guess this is a very happy story, right? Oh my gosh, no. Uh, one of these days. <laughs> so Francine's story really brought spousal abuse to the forefront of the public in the 70s. She had endured 13 years of abuse from her husband, Mickey. Then one night in 1977, she put her four kids in the car, went back into the house, poured gasoline around her drunk sleeping husband, lit a match, and went back to her car. She drove herself to the police station to turn herself in as Mickey died of smoke inhalation. Now, this was a huge case. So was I this got, the basis of that like movie yes. the, with Helen Slater, the, the beds burning? Faucet. We'll get to it. Okay. So I, got, I listened to a great episode of Once Upon a Crime with Esther Ludlow, which was wonderful. She got a lot of information from The Burning Bed, which is a book that was written about this. That's what's called The Burning Bed. Yes. Okay. And then I, there was there was original People magazine articles that I used, which I'll put all that information in the show notes. So let's get into it. So Francine was born in Michigan in 1947. Growing up, her father was an alcoholic and abusive. There was a mindset of obviously that wives were the property of their husbands and they had the right to physically abuse them. Police looked at any abuse that husbands did to wives as a family issue. There's a case in 1976 where a woman in Queens called a police station and she said that she was bloodied and her ribs were broken and her husband was said he was going to come back and murder her. 
And the police just said, this is a family thing, and hung yeah. up. I mean, for a long time, was, yeah. particularly in Alabama, there were laws that would protect such things. You know, like, even like you say, marital rape was protected under the law because yeah. you were, uh, I mean, it's not like the law said it's a family thing, but that was the idea. Or that worse, that the wife was the property of the husband anyway, so he could kind of do as he saw fit. Yes. There's also an issue that if the wife did press charges and he went to jail, if he was the breadwinner of the family, then they wouldn't have any income coming in. And that was another stress, especially if they had children. And so this is a quote from Marjorie D. Fields, who was a lawyer at the time with Brooklyn Legal Services. She was arguing a case for a woman who had been beaten. And the four to one vote said that if a husband beats a wife two times and there is a hiatus of four years between each beating, there is not sufficient ground for a judgment of divorce. I'm wondering how we came up with that mathematical formula. Oh, my gosh. The women also were, uh, who tried to fight their husbands were asked, what did you do to get abused? Hmm. What did you do wrong? So if you did this wrong, then you know maybe we shouldn't file for divorce right away. Maybe we should try to work it out. In 1910, the Supreme Court said that a woman could not do anything about her husband beating her because essentially all hell would break loose. Like then the husband could say this about the wife and the wife could say that about the husband. And, you know, it would just be you can't have spouse on spouse saying slanderous stuff. There was a public hearing on battered women in 1976 and uh, Councilman Leon A. Katz said, do we break up a marriage merely because a man beats his wife? Yes. <laughs> right. You do. And uh, this this attorney, Marjorie Fields, was having to argue that, yes, if a man beats a woman up once, that should be a case for divorce. But judges expected the woman to try and stay with their husbands and, and work it out. In 1977, before Francine killed her husband, the FBI said that spousal abuse was the most underreported crime. In 1972, the first rape crisis line was established in Washington, D.C. The first safe house for domestic violence was established in London in 1971. And then it wasn't until 94 that the Violence Against Women Act was passed. Right. Well, you know, I mean, you were talking about how the, you know, these judges would you know, do this under the guise of encouraging families to stay together. I mean, that still happens, you know, and I, I can't really get into it too much, but there's some uh, a case that I'm involved in that years ago where um, there's a very bad family situation mm-hmm. where the um, child just wanted nothing to do with the, the father for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons. Um, you can just imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, looking through the, the judge's rulings on this issue, the judge decided that, yes, he recognized that this was a really, I think he actually used the word, you know, just a, a terrible situation. And they... Honestly, should be uh, you know separated, and this person should have no custody rights. But in the interest of you know building up the family unit, he felt it was best to at least encourage that relationship. So he allowed. This was recently. Uh, well, the case has been going on for a long time, but it was certainly within this uh, past decade or so. The judge has a lot of discretion. It's really up to his his or her um, political leanings, attitudes about the family. Mm-hmm. All of that gets in the way. Um, for better or worse, of just simple issues of, you know, not simple, but, you know, um, this is how sometimes this is a lot, just continues to allow be happen. Right. People should not just be beating together. Right. Um, and that's even worse when there's a child involved. Um, All right. So let's go back to Francine. She left high school at age 16 to marry 18-year-old Mickey. She was impressed with him because he had a car and she had, you know, five siblings at home, an abusive dad. So you could see that just that little bit of freedom was enough for her to leave her family. And so she decided to marry Mickey. The abuse started just after their wedding. She bought some new clothes and he ripped them off her, saying that she looked 
too suggestive. A quote from her says, I bought some new clothes and he ripped them off me. I don't know whether I looked too pretty or what, but he didn't want me to look that way. I was shocked because I had never been treated that way before. But what do you do when you're 16 years old and you had to beg your parents to let you get married? Of course, he said, I'm sorry, forgive me, it will never happen again. And I believed him, but it did happen again. And by that time, I was pregnant and I felt like I had to make the best of it. Now, she's 16. Can I know, that's, that's, that's a child. I mean, that's she's so a insane. Child. Yeah. She went on to have four kids while Mickey spent most of their money on alcohol and went from job to job. So when she was pregnant with her fourth child, she got desperate. They had no money, they had no food, and she could not apply for welfare unless the person who made the more money came to the welfare office, but Mickey refused to do that. She had to go in there begging, and the guy asked her, well, is is your husband beating you? And she admitted yes. And he said, well, here, file for divorce. Which that, in this time, was pretty bold that he was willing to help her out like this. So she did file for divorce. She moved into a tiny apartment, but eventually he, she let him see the kids, and eventually he ended up moving in. Then she was kicked out of her apartment because he would come over and get drunk and bring his brother. And she moved into a, a home that she was renting. And slowly he ended up moving in there. She couldn't get away from him. And she kept going to different departments asking for help. And they kept telling her that she had to go to a different department. We can't help you here with that. So she was trying to get help, but she couldn't. She also, at one point, before she filed for divorce, they moved in with his family. And that was Flossie in Berlin were his parents. And they had uh, six kids also. And in that house, the boys were not required to do anything. The women and the family, their daughters and the mother waited on them hand and foot. So this is like, this is generational, you know, these issues of that the men don't have to do anything and the women are servants. And so this whole time she's kind of relying on his parents who are always on Mickey's side. So then she had finally been away from him for about a year, even though he was still come and go when he wanted. But in 1971, he was in a near fatal car crash and Francine took him back, hoping that this would maybe heal the marriage. Hmm. Maybe she could take care of him. But things actually got worse. During this time, too, this is interesting. This kind of goes back to our Candyman true crime episode. He got one of those FHA loans for a house. This is obviously a white family. And so he was able to buy a home. And that was actually a bit detrimental to her because now she had another reason to stay with him. They had this house and they bought it right next to his parents' She had four kids at this time, so she was even more trapped. Yeah. And so so after his injury, he got worse. It could have been he had a head injury after the accident, and that could have caused his violence to even to increase. It also could have been because he felt more helpless. He was on disability, and so it made him feel like he needed more power over her. He continued to beat and rape her. She lived in constant fear. He killed his daughter's kitten oh. in front of the daughter. He destroyed furniture. She wanted to kill herself, but she couldn't leave her kids. She also wanted to just run away, but then she was like, well, what am I going to do? So I got on an airplane, and then we hang out on a park bench. She was like, there's nothing we can do. It was kind of creepy. Francine described the same experience that Elizabeth Moss described. She said that she would be sitting there fantasizing about leaving him, and he would know. And he would look at her and say, you're never going to fucking leave me, bitch. And like, I wonder if they pulled that from that story. I don't know. Maybe it's just a normal domestic violence issue for when, the, when it's so extreme like this. There were many bad incidents that escalated. But in one instance, 
He was verbally abusing her and started punching her, and she had to send her oldest, Christy, next door to get her mother-in-law. The in-laws came over, and Mickey actually ended up pushing his dad, slapping his mom, and they called the police. The police arrived, and the only reason they arrested him was because he hit a police officer. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. The whole time, um, his mother was telling the police officers to be gentle with him. He's, he's my baby, you know, after he had already beat up his wife and slapped her. And, and before 1984, the police couldn't arrest someone unless they actually witnessed the assault. And even if there was a domestic dispute, they usually wouldn't arrest the husband. They would just tell them to keep it down. The most dangerous um, responses for police officers were domestic violence. It was more likely that a police officer would get harmed coming into a domestic violence dispute. That makes a certain amount of sense. I mean... Uh, I mean, there's whole categories of murder that are, you know, there's a whole uh, legal offense that is based off of essentially the heat of the moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it makes sense that if you get caught up in that, that, you know, there's a lot of, um, it's kind of no holds barred at that point. So that's another reason, too, that the police w- didn't want to respond to those. They're like, I'm going to go get shot. And so, I, and I mean, again, we're talking about, this isn't white culture. So just imagine how much worse it is to be an African-American and be scared to call the police than yeah, not then, having the police even responding. Right, have that additional fear right. of what's going to happen when the police show up, you know, right. how am I going to be treated? So Mickey was released. Obviously, he came back home. He would hold a knife to her throat, strangle her till she blacked out. There was another instance where he beat her and told her to leave, so she got in her car and left. And he followed her, and in the presence of a police officer, he tried to run her off the road. He got out and attempted to strangle her. And he got arrested again because this time the police witnessed it. But she wanted him to be tried with, for attempted murder, but they would only, they put him in for like 30 days and he got out. During all of this time, she was trying to take classes. She was trying to get her GED. She was trying to go to secretary school. She would stay up late studying, get up early to take care of the kids, have to do all of the housework, the cooking, take care of Mickey, and then go back to class. So imagine the stress of that and being beat regularly. So this is all building up to March 9th, 1977. Mickey has an exceptional episode. He starts to lose it. He makes her take all of her school books and papers out to the burn barrel to burn them. You know, back when you had a burn barrel. Yeah. Um, he keeps he kept punching her. And once again, Christy had to go get Flossie, his mother, and they called the police again. Her name is Flossie? I know you keep saying that. I just don't really yes. register it, but like F-L-O-S-S-I-E. That's not a name. That is the name we actually, me and Elise wanted for our dog. Flossie? Flossie. It's an old, like, 1910, 20s name. Oh, okay. I've never heard it before. So the police came. Again, they say they didn't witness anything, so they can't do anything. They leave. After they leave, Mickey is still insane. Francine tries to make dinner. He complains about it, throws it on the floor, smashes in her hair, dumps the garbage out. I mean, it's just the way that, I mean, Esther Ludlow goes into complete detail on it in that podcast episode, which I'll put a link to. And it was almost too much for me to listen to. I mean, it was... I wonder if he did have some sort of head injury. I mean, that just sounds really... I mean, it sounds like... I mean, I'm not saying that that level of violence is not common, but it... there's To escalate that much after that, I mean, I think it definitely had something to do with it. I mean, he had been raised. He'd been pampered. He knew that he was in charge. He would... He was aggressive and beat her and manipulated her. But to have it ramp up to this point, I would think that the head injury might have something to do with it. So he forced her to admit that she would quit school 
which is all she has. Kind of like what you're saying with the isolation. Like when she was able to go to class and able to leave the house, that's the only time she felt safe. Mm. So imagine that being taken away. This is the end of it for her. He rapes her and then falls asleep in a drunk stupor. So this is a quote from her. She says, I was thinking about all the things that had happened to me, all the times he had hurt me, how he had hurt the kids. She said, I stood still for a moment, hesitating, and a voice urged me on. It whispered, do it, do it, do it. She said it was the easiest thing in the world to do. She said it was almost like she was in a trance. And then she said as soon as she lit the match, she was like, oh, shit, what have I done? But at that point, it was too late. She had to leave the house. She had to get out. She got back in the car with with her kids, and she drove right to the police station and said, I did it. And fainted. I mean, wow. it's very dramatic. It's also a little bit like uh, Evangeline Lilly's character in Lost. Yes, I was wondering about that. But Kate was not being abused. She wasn't the abuser, but her her mother was. Right. And I so, thought there was some scene where it suggested that he was oh, yeah, going to abuse too. her yeah, as well. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And so she is on the run because of that. Mm-hmm. But she never turned herself in. That was kind of the point. No. Yeah. So she went back to the police station. She was arrested for murder. With a jury of 10 women and two men, she was acquitted on the basis of temporary insanity. This became known as the burning bed syndrome, which was used in other women's cases of domestic violence. While this was seen through as a breakthrough for battered women, a lot of people thought that she was a murderer, including his family, which obviously Flossie, that name still bother you? It just kind of distracts me. (laughs) Flossie testified, refused to admit that he ever hurt anybody. I mean, how can a mother be so jaded like that i just don't understand how that's possible i don't i mean yeah i, I agree but i mean I, I because it is his mother that's the only i can definitely see going the either best way to, friend is his mother right <laughs> um his brother threatened her and sent her a note that said you're next and it's kind of interesting mickey's brother and well, one of his brothers and his father ended up committing suicide so you just know like like the mental illness that was running rampant through that family prosecutors ended up charging her with first degree murder which, you know, the defense thought that possibly should get manslaughter. So it was a kind of a shock to them, but she was found not guilty. But then this also kind of like we were talking about with a lot of these political things that happen is like people are going to think, well, now all the wives are going to kill their husbands, <laughs> you know, like gay people can get married. Well, now everyone's going to get married to farm animals. Yeah. You know, it's just like these. No, just gay people. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, well, if it got to that point, maybe you do deserve some comeuppance, but. It's not that everyone's going to rebel at the same time. So she spent nine months in prison and had a lot of emotional distress to heal from. Uh, Faith McNulty approached Francine about writing her memoir, and that's the book The Burning Bed, which was released. Then in 1984, it was made into a TV movie of the same name, starring Farrah Fawcett as Francine. Why did I think it was Helen Slater? I guess I just get confused. All the um, those TV maybe there's another one. TV movies. Yeah. But it really helped bring the issue of domestic violence behind closed doors out. Even though it was a made-for-TV movie, people hadn't seen anything like that before. Yeah. I mean, I, I was. I mean, the fact that I'm even aware of it, I suggest that it was kind of a big deal for the time. I mean, I kind of remember seeing it on TV. I think they used to run it a lot. I have to see if we can find it on YouTube. That'd be interesting. I mean, I hate to minimize this way. You get it, but it's actually sort of a, a um, like that character in the burning bed is like a gay icon. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, you can kind of see it, how that yeah, you know, that's sort so of fierce woman. But I mean, you hear it. Like, I was, I was first told about it, like, at a gay bar. <laughs> this guy was going on and on about it. And, how, <laughs> and, she, and uh, I just remember him saying, like, vigilante justice, like, over and over again. And, um, and you know, it's kind of sad because you think, oh, she's she got out of prison. She got away from her husband. But the rest of her life was pretty, pretty terrible. She self-medicated with drugs and alcohol. 
She ended up remarrying someone named Robert Wilson, who had just gotten out of prison for serving 10 years of a 30-year sentence for armed robbery. By this point, her two oldest were now teenagers, and they were running wild. They had their own emotional issues. They resented their new stepdad. There was a 1984 People article, and it really highlighted all the turmoil that was in the home. The kids were moving in and out. They were moving to different states. There was sexual abuse alleged against Wilson by the younger daughter. There was a story about how Francine beat her oldest daughter just as badly. She got had two black eyes, you know. It just, nothing really... Resolved, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mickey had essentially just destroyed a whole generation. Uh, Francine did end up getting her nursing degree and worked in nursing homes. She spent her last year spending time with elderly people and died in 2017 at age 69. But there's also, remember the song Independence Day that Martina McBride sang? Uh, I don't Let know. freedom ring. Maybe. It's about this. Oh, okay. And she says, like, when the firefighters came to put the fire out, I mean, it's talking about this case. In wow, particular. okay. And they're saying, like, this is Independence Day. Like, this is when she got her freedom. That's kind of dark. Wow. <laughs> I know. And then also, you know, the, the famous song by the Dixie Chicks, Earl Had to Die, is not referring to this, but it is just saying, like, sometimes you can't get away from these people. What are you going to do? You're going to feed them poison black eyed peas. What else are you going to do? You got to, what are you going to do with Ted Bundy? You have to execute him. <laughs> right. Some of these people are that awful. But so that's the story of Francine Hughes. Unfortunately, her story helped. I mean, by that point, they had, you know, a Domestic Violence Awareness Week. And then from there, it's been building. But like you said, it's still an issue. And again, especially among amongst the, the black women Americans. So we still have a lot to do. Yes. But there are a lot of great people out there who want to help you. And so I'll post, you know, any kind of resources that I can find up there. Yeah. And I will say that, I mean, but even during the pandemic and the quarantine, like there's still all the resources of the courts and um, that type of thing. It's still available. There's, you know, there's emergency provisions in place for that type of thing. Okay. Um, and uh, there's a lot of really good work being done by volunteer lawyers associations. I get emails about them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, all that is still very much in place. It's more difficult for sure, but I wouldn't, I don't hate for people to think that they don't even have that resource because of what's going on now. That's people have gone out of the way to make sure that type of thing is still available, at least in, in Birmingham. Yes. There are much better people than us out there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. All right. Well, so that is Francine's story. Please be aware of your neighbors. Yeah. Take care of everybody. And see if you can uh, watch uh, The Burning Bed. Yeah. Uh, Farrah Fawcett. Absolutely. I'm going to try and look it up too. And then so stay tuned for next week. We don't know what our movie is going to be, but it'll be exciting, I guess. Yes. All right. So take care. Good night. Bye. <laughs> hey, Chris. Hey. I just listened to the last episode of Sometimes That Is Better, and I have thoughts. Really? That is amazing because I just listened to our Child's Play 3 episode. <laughs> And boy, did we get some things wrong. So how do I tell us? How do we get in touch with us? I think the most fun way is to follow us on Instagram okay. at Sometimes Dead Podcast. At Sometimes Dead Podcast. Slide into our DMs, comment on our photos. What about Twitter? Well, you can follow us on Twitter at Sometimes Dead 4. Twitter is fun because we like to tag all these famous people who will never see it, but it's fun to think that we can connect with them. Uh, we've gotten a few likes from famous people. That's um, true. Mary Lambert. Mick Garris. Mm-hmm. That's probably about it. The guy that uh, does a lot of the Twin Peaks uh, fandom, he, he liked us. Good, good. Also, another fun way is to, we have a Facebook group called Sometimes Groups Are Better. Right. In lieu of doing all that, you can always rate 
subscribe and review. Well, do that first. Rate and review on iTunes because that is the number one thing to do, apparently. It really helps us move up in the ratings and then other people see us. And then we increase the community and just, it's beautiful. Excellent. We'll do that first. Okay. Well, sounds good. Now, uh, let's go watch Child's Play 4. (laughs) Right. All right.